0: You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio podcast. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. It's just gone past eight PM. I'm Alamine Templeton. You're tuned into Marcus Sahaba Online Radio. This is Eye on the World, and uh, we're having we're putting an Eye on the World tonight. Uh, we're having a look at um, misery in Gaza continues as uh, talks drag on. The misery and the genocide continues as Genocide Joe's boys hunker down with uh, representatives of uh, apartheid Israel, um, uh, quisling Egypt uh, and um, uh, schizophrenic Qatar. Yes, so they were they they, they were meeting uh, at the weekend trying to hammer out some kind of um, ceasefire or or end the genocide proposal. Uh, they still haven't come to a final agreement there. There's still a little bit of uncertainty regarding Hamas's <clears throat> view of, of the talks at the moment. It's quite, uh, it's quite incredible to think that those talks could be ongoing without Hamas actually being present. I wonder if perhaps Hamas is present, but they, uh, all the other parties have said, you can only attend the talks if you're going to tell everyone that we didn't talk to you because you're not allowed to be talking to you. You. Anyway. Uh that is uh that's one of the issues we'll be looking at inshallah in, in the show tonight. Uh and, and, and another major issue uh on the on the on the boil is um is uh the um a movement of Indians to apartheid Israel. What's up with that? Yes, do you know you've got Indians, um, people from India who claim that they are in actual fact Jewish? We picked up this issue in our afternoon show and, um, I initially, uh, turned cold on it, uh, thinking, oh, will know, but it actually does make for quite, uh, a, 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 a fascinating story. Uh, the Indian Jews of India. Uh, it's, reminiscent of the Ashkenazi Jews uh who were I think they were at the at the mouth of the Volga River caught between um Christian Tatars and uh, and Muslim Cossacks or maybe it was a uh, Muslim Tatars and Christian Cossacks always get those ones confused up there in, uh, around Georgia side around Ukraine side yeah yeah that's where the Ashkenazi Jews all come from uh, a few hundred years ago, they decided that they were just going to become Jewish. So they declared themselves Jewish. And made uh, it's of course a major controversy in the Jewish community. But I thought, given um, uh, given the, there is now move to bring to bring the Indians to uh, Nazi Israel, in the hope of that um, the Indian Jews are going to be better than the Black Jews back in the 1990s. A part of Israel put together what they called Operation Operation Noah, where they were they were rescuing the black Jews of Africa and bringing them to Israel, where they were supposed to be obedient street sweepers and, and, and nannies and occasional sex slaves for Israeli presidents. Well, that didn't go down well with them, and so um, after 20, 30, 40 years, they 30 years they've have simply had enough And now there's a major conflict between the black jews from eritrea and the israeli government and now the israeli government is trying to expel them all and to replace them with nice uh, indian people whether it's going to work out that way or whether the nice indian people are going to find themselves uh, sharing the same kind of relationship that the nice uh, eritrean jewish people found themselves sharing with the nazi state um, and now the Nazi state is doing its best to evict all of them uh, from Israel. Apparently, they're not Jewish enough, or something. I don't quite know exactly what the legal ramifications are, but there is there's a whole process. There's a whole process that you have to undergo um, uh, in order to be declared Jewish by the Jewish state and be allowed to move into Israel. You know, you know, they don't just let anyone move into a kibbutz. So that in itself is fascinating as well, I think, for just from an Islamic perspective, comparing how it's, how easy it is to become a Muslim and how, you know, what's the process of becoming Jewish, especially if you're Indian. Um, I'm sure that many listeners are not really interested in becoming Jewish, but nevertheless, uh, it, 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 does, it, it, it does make for a fascinating story. And then uh, if we've got time later on in the show, we're going to have a look at um, – just how much of a police state is America turning into, um, especially now with the advent of artificial intelligence? They're becoming far better. They're not necessarily getting better at cutting down on crime, but they are getting far better at keeping a very close eye on exactly what um, on exactly what its ordinary citizens are getting up to. All right, that peace deal. The Israeli government is expected to meet, um, to discuss proposals on a prison exchange deal, uh, while the Palestinian movement Hamas has stressed that the release of any detainees must take place within a larger plan to end the Israeli genocide and the war in Gaza. The meeting of the Israeli cabinet comes a day after a quadripartite meeting was held in Paris. That's a meeting between four parties to discuss a new exchange deal. The Israeli Broadcasting Corporation, KAN, said earlier that the Paris talks held with the participation of Israel, the United States, Egypt, and Qatar ended with progress in the talks on the prison exchange. It cited an Israeli political source as saying that the conference dealt with a plan to release Israeli prisoners in stages. The Israeli source said the parties discussed a two-month ceasefire, which would lead to the release of 100 Israeli prisoners with priority given to children, if there are any, and women and the sick. In exchange, Israel would release a large number of Palestinian prisoners. An exact number, however, has not been specified in the media. For its part, Hamas said the release of detainees is linked to the end of Israeli aggression on Gaza and the withdrawal of all occupation forces from the Strip. The latest of such statements was made by Sami al-Zuri, Abu Zuri, who serves the role of Hamas's political bureau chief abroad. He told Reuters that the success of the Paris meeting depends on the extent of the occupation's response to Hamas's demand to stop the aggression on Gaza. Israel estimates there are about 136 prisoners um, in Gaza still. They're mostly military men detained by Hamas forces on October 7. On the other hand, Israel holds nearly 9,000 Palestinian captives, nearly half of whom were detained since the start of the Israeli genocide on Gaza. Citing Egyptian officials, the Wall Street Journal has revealed a new offer to Hamas from countries playing the mediating role offers. It includes a four-month ceasefire in exchange for the release of all Israeli prisoners. The newspaper added that the new offer includes a halt to Israeli attacks for six weeks as a first stage in order to release Israeli prisoners of children, uh, women and the elderly who need urgent medical care. In exchange, Israel says it will release a large number of Palestinian prisoners and increase the entry of humanitarian aid into Gaza. In its second phase, Hamas would release captured Israeli soldiers and would also hand over the bodies of Israelis killed in Gaza to Tel Aviv. It is believed that dozens of Israeli soldiers have been killed in Israeli bombing of Gaza or in multiple failed attempts at freeing them by force. According to the Wall Street Journal, a new offer also includes Hamas obtaining international guarantees, including from the United States, that a comprehensive agreement can be reached that will stop attacks on Gaza once and for all. Mm, That once and for all sounds like a very long time, doesn't it? I wonder if that would ever happen. The New York Times quoted U.S. officials as saying that the prisoner exchange agreement could be concluded within the next two weeks. Following Qatari and Egyptian mediation, Hamas and Israel reached a week-long temporary humanitarian truce until the 1st of December, during which prisoners were exchanged and limited humanitarian aid was brought into Gaza. Now that's from uh, the, uh, that's from the Palestine Chronicle. That's their latest, um, their latest offering today. And, um, but there was also another more detailed article which came out on, um, the, the Jerusalem Post. Yes. So I thought it would be a good idea to to compare the two articles. The Jerusalem Post goes into a lot more detail. Obviously, they're more worried about their 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 Jewish um their Jewish hostages. So anyway, according to the uh, Times of Israel, no the the Jerusalem Times, the United States, Israel, and Qatar have sketched out the bare bones of a framework for the proposed arrangement during weekend talks in Paris. Talks uh, for a pause in fighting are at an early stage. Hamas says it has not yet received the truce proposal. Officials say a mix up preceded the deadly drone, drone strike in Jordan, but we're not going to talk about that everywhere. Um, the talks at an early stage. Uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, was at the talks. Uh, as was, um, the foreign minister of Qatar, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Rahman bin Jassim Thani, And, uh, so that's, uh, it's, uh, it's quite a, a high level meeting. I find it difficult. Uh, uh, it really is problematic not to have Hamas at that meeting because, uh, I mean, clearly Hamas isn't, isn't, uh, issuing comment on it. So we're not really sure if Hamas has even received the proposals. Um, And that means that the negotiators are always going to be negotiating in the dark. If they can't get a yes or a no, a nod or a shake of the head from Hamas, that means they've got to wait for principles to go back to secondaries and secondaries to go back to principles and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it just draws out the whole thing. But then again, maybe that's why they're doing it this way. They don't want the talks to actually come to an end. They want the genocide to continue. I wonder. Um... The representatives from the Four Nations agreed uh, to have Qatar present present a nascent framework to Hamas that proposes a six-week pause in the war in Gaza for Hamas to exchange some hostages for Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. The talks at an early stage and many details would need to be worked out if Hamas agrees to start building on the framework, the officials said. Qatar is presenting the proposal to the political leaders of Hamas, who will convey it to the group's military leaders, who would then send a response. That process could take days or even longer, because the military leaders are in hiding, understandably, in tunnels deep beneath Gaza. In the proposed framework, Hamas uh, says it will release elderly hostages, women and children, if any, are still being held alive and are alive over the pause period of six weeks. That would be the first of three potential phases of swaps during the seven-day pause in November. Many people in those categories were among more than 100 hostages released in exchange for Palestinian prisoners, but some remain in the hands of Hamas or other militant groups in Gaza. Some Israeli officials say the number of hostages who would qualify for the first release is between 30 and 35. But that uh, is an estimate, and the negotiators do not know the actual number. It's unclear if female soldiers would be included in hostages released in the trance being discussed. That could be worked out in negotiations or details if talks reach that stage. Hamas and other men from Gaza took about 240 people hostage uh, in southern Israel on October 7, which also resulted in about 1,200 deaths, half of which, which were caused by Israeli soldiers, tanks, and helicopter pilots blowing up uh, what they believed were, were Palestinians, but it turned out in actual fact were Israelis. Um, The robust, uh, the retaliatory Israeli military uh, campaign of genocide with robust weapon support from the US has killed nearly 27,000 people, according to the health ministry in Gaza. Since the November swap, talks over hostage release have stalled. Hamas has tried to steer any diplomacy towards discussion of a permanent ceasefire, but Israel leaders are refusing. A meeting in Paris was intended to get negotiations going again. The term of the broad framework was sketched out on Sunday in Paris. Uh, William J. Burns, the director of the CIA, was there, as were the heads of Israel's intelligence service, the Mossad and the internal security agency Shin Bet. One official said Mr. Burns was very helpful in getting the Israeli representatives to agree to some of the suggestions. The Israeli officials were expected to speak to leaders in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv about the framework after returning from Paris. The Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Qatar, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman bin Jassim al Thani, flew from the meeting in Paris to Washington, where he met Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken. Blinken declined to give details of the framework at a news conference, uh, saying, uh, The less said, the better but he said the proposal now on the table is a compelling one and there's some real hope going forward. He added that the countries in the talks were in alignment on the initial framework to be presented to Hamas, but he said Hamas will have to make its own decisions. Sheikh Mohammed said at a public talk at the Atlantic Council after his meeting with Blinken that we are in a much better place than we were a few weeks ago. Our main role as mediator is trying our best to get a negotiated solution where it can bring the hostages safely back to their homes, yet also stop the bombing. In a first proposed hostage for prisoner swap successfully taking place during six weeks of the war, if if the first proposed swap um, during the six-week pause does happen, then two other phases with similar terms could be enacted after details are worked out. Uh, eventually, officials say Hamas might hand over male soldiers and corpses or people who died in captivity. So that must mean that they must have refrigeration facilities underground as well, doesn't it? I must have like, a, like a, a minor city down there. We should bring those guys to South Africa to um, dig our gold mines. I think um, maybe they've got South African gold miners there. Helping them dig their tunnels. I wonder. Some officials from the countries involved in the talks said they hoped the phases would lead to a permanent ceasefire. This was the hope among Qatari officials during the November pause, but that fell apart at the end as fighting restarted and negotiators were unable to extend it. The New York Times reported on Saturday that American officials are trying to push forward on three major sets of negotiations to bring about a political resolution. The first, one U.S. officials consider the most urgent Is on the hostages and a pause that might lead to a permanent ceasefire. (coughs) It really is uh, these hostages. I wonder. I wonder if General Underpants is part of uh, the hostages there. Um, I can't remember the general's name right now. He used to be the head of the Gaza Brigade. He had. uh, He had just been moved from them to somewhere else. But he was like he was the number one enemy. Uh as far as the Razans were concerned. They went and they got him out of his kibbutz and pulled him off to Raza City and, and videoed him being paraded down one of these streets in his underpants. I thought that was beautiful. It was really a beautiful moment. Uh, Israel has subsequently denied that he's being held, but um, I wouldn't say that the evidence they've given is in any way uh, absolute or beyond reasonable doubt. Or even on a balance of probabilities, I would still tend to believe Hamas, that they do have him. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why they're so desperate to get hold of those Israeli soldiers. But anyway... Um. Yeah, the three major sets of negotiations. The first is to release the hostages and a pause that might lead to a permanent ceasefire. The second is on overhauling the leadership of the Palestinian Authority, a semi-autonomous body that ministers parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank, a sell sellout body that aligns itself with apartheid Israel. Should I say the third point is on trying to get Israel to commit to a concrete pathway to a Palestinian state in exchange for Saudi Arabia agreeing to normal diplomatic ties with Israel. Um. For months before the October 7 attacks, the Biden administration had been talking to Saudi officials about offering them U.S. guarantees if they agree to normalize ties with Israel. Um, so anyway, so that's what they, 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 that for them is a normalization deal. They want that normalization deal. Uh, people out there, I know, are hoping that somehow or other the Saudis are going to come across and start helping the Palestinians, but the fact that uh, ISIS has re-emerged in Iraq and Syria means, as far as I'm concerned, that the Saudis are on the side of the Israelis in this fight. yes. UAE and Saudi Arabia are on the side of Israel. That's what uh, ISIS re-emerging in Iraq says to me. Um, A day after those officials met uh, in uh, in Paris, uh, Hamas uh, spokesman Osama Hamdan, acknowledged that great efforts were being made by mediators and, but said, we have not received anything yet. Central to the talks have been disputes about a pause in the fighting in the Gaza Strip and a release of more than 100 hostages believed to be held there. A person briefed on the talks uh, said Israel had put forward a proposal for Egypt and Qatar to present to Hamas and the two countries believed there had been enough progress to pass that uh, proposal along. Additional talks are planned for this week. The office of Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu said uh, the talks are constructive but cautioned that significant gaps remain. Speaking to reporters in Beirut, Mr. Hamdan maintained Hamas's public posture that any agreement would have to involve a full ceasefire. We want a comprehensive and complete cessation of aggression, not temporary truces that allow the enemy to kill our people, he said. The meeting in Paris, which included, uh, as I said, William J. Burns of the CIA, um, came as Israel's government has faced increased pressure over its handling of the war, which began on October 7. It's not a war, to genocide. Um... Family members of those still being held in Gaza have called for a deal and the International Court of Justice in The Hague last week ordered the delivery of more humanitarian aid to Palestinians uh, in Gaza where health officials say 26, nearly 27,000 people have died. Uh, Sheikh Mohammed, the Qatari prime minister, expressed optimism about the talks. He said uh, during remarks delivered to the Atlantic Council, which is, of course, a Washington-based institution, he said good progress had been made in the talks. Even so, he stressed his country's role was limited to that of an intermediary trying to bridge the gap between proposals offered by Hamas and Israel. Negotiations are the only viable path towards de-escalation, according to Sheikh Mohammed Who added the rise in death toll from Israel's campaign in Gaza was not getting any results to get the hostages back. Not helping at all, he says. Uh, And now that takes us to India's India's Jews tribe. India's Jewish tribe, the lost Jewish tribe of India. Yeah, yes, I know. It sounds odd, doesn't it? But there you have it. There you have it. Joseph Haukip, an undergraduate student in Manipur, is excited at the thought of going to Israel. He is ready to join the Israeli army to fight Hamas in a war in which Israel's brutal assault in Gaza has killed nearly 27,000 people, mainly women and children. The 20-year-old Joseph and his family have recently returned to the home in the Kangpokpi, Kangpokpi Kangpokpi district of Manipur after five months in the neighboring state of Mizoram, where they had fled when an ethnic conflict broke out in Manipur last year. Uh, I stayed in a makeshift camp with other members of the B'nai Abenashi community since August last year and have just returned a few days ago, but I want to go to Israel and connect with my lost tribe. I also want to join the Israeli army and help them in fighting against Hamas because I belong from that land, how Kip said. Rafael Chiangte, a taxi driver in Ayazawal, Mizoram's capital, wants to move to Israel along with his wife and toddler to connect with his ancestral roots, he says, and reunite with his mother. Cheyente's mm, mother, Sarah Pachatao, relocated to Israel along with her brother in 93. I belong to the lost tribe and want to stay with my mother and also provide a better future for my daughter. I want to reunite with the land from where we got separated over 2,700 years ago, Cheyente said. Yes, can you believe it? You know people talk about uh, the Zionists being crazy, want to wanting to um uh, claim rights to a land that they were evicted from more than two thousand years ago now we 've got these Indians who go like they were two thousand seven hundred years ago they 've got long memories they want to they want to go back uh Rafael Chiangte, a taxi driver in Aizawal, says his roots are in Israel. Chiangte and Haukip are among about 5,000 people living in the Indian states of Manipur and Mizoram who believe they are the descendants of the Manasseh, one of the biblical lost tribes of Israel, exiled in 722 BC by Assyrian conquerors and commonly referred to as the Bene Manashi community. Or Hebrew, or Hebrew for the children of Manasseh, the first son of Joseph. P C a Christian research based in Israel, uh, says several members of the Chin, the Kuki, and the Mizo ethnic groups believe themselves to be the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. During ancient times, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The southern one was known as the Kingdom of Judah. And mostly comprised the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, while the northern part was made up of the so-called ten tribes. He said, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom and exiled the tribes living there. Several of them fled and settled in different parts of the world. According to the Beni, Marsh, and Menashe, they were dispersed to China, from where they ended up in northeast India. Israel's 1950 Law of Return allowed Jews, people with one or more Jewish grandparents and their spouses. The right to relocate to Israel and acquire citizenship there also opened the doors to bring the Lost Tribes back. In India, claims of being a descendant of the Lost Tribes began in 1951, coincidentally, when a tribal leader, Melech had a dream that his ancient homeland was Israel. Since then, many people in northeast India, mostly in the states of Manipur and Mizoram, have embraced Judaism and its customs and traditions. Ngai Khotin Kipgem, with her teenage daughter now Kim and one-year-old grandson Shairo Kikben, uh, are among the people who are hoping that they are going to end up in Israel very soon. Um, they said that they were introduced to Israeli Rabbi Eliyahu Avichayel to the Benayi Menashe tribe for the first time during their visit to India in 1980. I introduced him with the community, although I was not very much convinced of their claims of the lost tribe, as they had no documentary evidence to support it, apart from their religious rituals like maintaining Sabbath and legends that they crossed the Red Sea and originated from the ten lost tribes, Will said. But the B'nai Menashe started coming to Israel in the 1980s. In 1991, when Will opened an exhibition on the legend of the Ten Lost Tribes at the Museum of the Jewish Diaspora, uh, twelve people from the community turned up, she recalled. Slowly the number started swelling, which rose further after the chief rabbinate of Israel accepted them as Jews in 2005. And around 3,500 have already arrived from India in the past three decades, he added. For those hoping to return to Israel, they have to first make what they call the Aliyah. That's a Hebrew for ascent or to rise, but it used to mean a move to Israel. The first Aliyah, which mainly involves Israeli authorities checking documents, including a conversion to Judaism certificate issued by a rabbi and interviews before qualifying to shift to Israel. Uh, Those took place in India in 2006. In the last Aliyah in 2021, 150 people went to Israel. While all Jews are eligible to make Aliyah, the final decision on whether to absorb them depends on the government of Israel. In September 2023, a committee of the Israeli parliament, called the Knesset, debated the delays in allowing the Bnei Menashe to make aliyah. In the past five years, 1,421 members of the community have moved to Israel, and committee chair Oded Forer pressed the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on why the remaining members of the community were not being helped to make aliyah. The government responded that it had set up an interministerial committee to prepare a plan for the immigration of the Bene of the Menashe to Israel and that it was supplying humanitarian aid to the community as it tries to survive the clashes in Manipur. But the delays haven't dampened the enthusiasm to move to Israel for uh, Leah Renthley, who is 52 years old. She resigned from a teacher's job in Israel about 10 years ago because it required her to work on Saturdays and so prevented me from following my religious practices like Sabbath, she said. My two sisters have already gone to Israel during the previous ideas, so said, and I've been waiting for my turn. Ngai Khotin Gikpen and her family fled Manipur when the ethnic conflict broke out on May 3, for the past seven months, she has been living on a college campus turned refugee camp in the district of Mizoram, apparently 80 kilometers, approximately 80 kilometers from Aizawal. The 70 year old is staying there with her teenage daughter, granddaughter Naokim, and one year old grandson Shayor, while the rest of the family have gone back to Manipur. Despite being safe in Mizoram, she said she longed to go to Israel. And to spend the final years of her life there, as she also claimed to be a member of the Bene Menashe, I want to go to Israel and reunite with Israelites, with Israelites from whom we got separated several centuries ago," she said. Conversion to Orthodox uh, Judaism, uh, Tamsimel Tamui, chairman of the Bene Menashe Council, offered prayers in a synagogue in Thanks. Uh, Thantwe, the chairman, uh, says every member of his community is praying that Israel allows him to move there soon. Uh, Will said that shortly after they arrive in Israel, the B'nai Menashe have to convert to Orthodox Judaism, learn the Hebrew language, and follow the religious rituals of the community. The, <coughs> excuse me, the organizations in Israel working to unite the B'nai Menashe with their country did not respond uh, to requests for information, but those from the community already in Israel have embraced the society, even the country's mandatory military service, said Will. They have shown much devotion and have got assimilated with the Israeli society and are settled everywhere in the country, she said, adding that about 200 members of the community had so far joined the Israeli military. They also enjoy better economic conditions in Israel, but the cost of living is higher than in northeast India, she added. P.C. abhiak the uh, Aizawal-based researcher, however, feels the community is misguided in its approach. The Bnei Menashis should not try to move out from Mizoram or elsewhere, as it has been their birthplace, and they should be proud of it. They can settle here and can still practice their religion, he said. Economic benefits seem to be a major reason for going to Israel, he added, referring to the higher income levels in Israel. But the Bnei Menashe members assert that the sole reason for going to Israel is to connect with the land. Tansima Thaumtwe, the chairman of the Bnei Menashe Council in Mizoram, said that every individual in his community is waiting for an aliyah. We are desperately waiting to reunite with the land of our ancestors. It all depends on Israel, when they allow us to enter their land, and so we can only pray that it happens soon, he said. Hmm? How about that for strange dreams, huh? Well, well, well. Indians move into apartheid Israel. Hmm. They say they're not in it for the money. They say they're not doing it for the money. Well, as you as, as you can tell, uh, all of these stories would uh, make it very clear that America is turning into a rather paranoid society. Hmm? I mean, it sees threats everywhere, existential threats. Uh, economic growth in China is an existential threat to the United States. Healthy children, healthy newborn babies in Africa are an existential threat to the United States. Well, as Hunter S. Thompson, uh, the gonzo writer from the 1970s and 80s, uh, he reckoned that in a closed society where everyone's guilty, the only crime is getting caught. And uh, the United States has... A few years ago, I did a program on exactly how the uh, Chinese government was maintaining surveillance of the Uyghurs um, uh, in in, in their country. And uh, basically, they're using artificial intelligence, uh, internet, uh, cameras, uh, in order to keep the 24-hour surveillance on everyone where uh, if uh, someone comes to your gate and has a talk with you, that will be picked up by a smart security camera, will send the information to an artificial intelligence processing network, and uh, that network will then send you an email, and they'll ask you, who is that person at your gate that you were speaking to? If you uh, usually go and uh, shop at Checkers, but then one weekend you go and you shop, at uh, pick and pay instead you will get a note saying why did you go and shop at checkers instead of pick and pay because the artificial intelligence knows from your credit card receipts and so on that you usually go to checkers now this week you've got um, pick and pay receipts and they want to know why you're at pick and pay instead of checkers they want to know everything you get up late one morning and you go to work late they want to know why you went to work late like uh, it's the boss from hell. And they never miss anything. And they keep you under their twenty-four surveillance for as long as they like. Now America and some Americans want to make this kind of surveillance a permanent feature of the home of the brave, the land of the free. Hmm. According to the FBI today, you may be an anti-government extremist, if you've purchased a Bible or other religious materials, you've used words like Mugger and Trump. So uh, my one, my younger brother would definitely be a, a watched person. You've shopped at Dick's Sporting Goods, Cabela's or Bass Pro Shops. Why buying sporting goods will get you into trouble with them? I don't know. You are a risk of being an anti, anti-government extremist If you've purchased tickets to travel by bus, cars or plane, or if you've done any of the above. In fact, if you've selected any of those options in recent years, you're probably already on a government watch list. If you're in America, that is. That's how broadly the government's net has been cast in its pursuit of domestic extremists. We're all fair game now. Easy targets for inclusion on some FBI watch list or another. When the FBI is asking banks and other financial institutions to carry out dragnet searches of customer transactions warrantlessly and without probable cause for extremism indicators broadly based on where you shop, what you read and how you travel, then we're all in trouble. Clearly, you don't have to do anything illegal to get onto an extremist watch list. You don't even have to challenge the government's authority. Frankly, you don't even have to care about politics or know anything about your rights. All you really need to do in order to be tagged as a suspicious character, flagged for surveillance and eventually placed on a government watch list, is to live in the United States. Well, I don't think that's bad. The Americans are so Paranoid that they actually spend more time uh, watching each other than uh, than the rest of the world. This is how easy it is to run afoul of the government's many red flags. I'm, I'm convinced I've got a red flag against my name with uh, my treatment uh, going through uh, Oattember oh, International Airport Customs. <laughs> like like something out of apartheid. I suppose maybe a white guy. I'm 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 white. So I suppose maybe. A white guy needs to experience that kind of thing every now and then. Have a black person treating you like a uh, white policeman did during apartheid. But still, uh, you know, so many years after democracy, it really, really is, uh, does catch in your throat. It really is quite sickening. Uh, in fact, all you need to do these days to end up on a government watch list or to be subjected to heightened scrutiny is to use certain trigger words like cloud and pork. And pirates. So we're all on it then. Uh, you surf the Internet. You'll be on a government watch list. You communicate using a cell phone. Oh, oh, you're a dangerous character. If you limp or stutter. Apparently it's, it indicates some kind of uh, criminal intent. If you drive a car. What? Yes. If you stay at a hotel. If you attend a political rally or express yourself on social media. If you have the temerity to appear to even appear to be mentally ill. If you serve in the military, yeah, how about that? You serve in the American military and they'll put you on an extremist watch list. If you disagree with a law enforcement official, I was turning left, officer. My indicator was on. If you call in sick to work, if you purchase materials at a hardware store, if you take flying or boating lessons, if you appear suspicious, if you appear confused or nervous, if you fidget or whistle, or if you have a bad smell, if you are seen in public waving a toy gun or anything remotely resembling a toy gun, such as those obvious uh, items around the house like a water nozzle or a remote control or a walking cane, or if you stare at a police officer, if you question government authority or appear to be pro-gun or pro-freedom, then you're on an extremist watch list. We're all presumed guilty until proven innocent now. It's just a matter of time uh, before you find yourself wrongly accused, investigated and confronted by police based on a data-driven algorithm or risk assessment culled together by a computer program run by artificial intelligence. For instance, the so-called typo in a geofence search warrant which allows police to capture location data for a particular geographic area Resulted in government officials being given access to information about who went where and with whom within a two-mile-long stretch of San Francisco that included churches, businesses, private homes, hotels, and restaurants. Thanks to the 24-hour-7 surveillance being carried out by the government's sprawling spy network of fusion centers, Americans are all just sitting ducks, waiting to be tagged, flagged, targeted, monitored, manipulated, investigated, interrogated, heckled, and generally harassed by agents of the American police state. Without ever having knowingly committed a crime or being convicted of one, you and your fellow citizens, if you ever go to America, have likely been assessed for behaviors the government might consider devious, dangerous, or concerning. Assigning a threat score based on your associations, activities, and viewpoints and catalogued in a government database according to how you should be approached by police and other government agencies based on your particular threat level. Before long, every household in America will be flagged as a threat and assigned a threat score. Nationwide, there are up to 123 real-time crime centers, known as fusion centers, which allow local police agencies to upload and share massive amounts of surveillance data and intelligence with state and federal agencies, culled from surveillance cameras, facial recognition technology, gunshot sensors, social media monitoring drones and body cameras, and artificial intelligence-driven predictive policing algorithms. And artificial intelligence-driven predictive policing algorithms. It's getting more and more complicated uh, to live in America nowadays. One of these uh, these days, only computers will be able to live there because only computers understand what's going on. These so-called data fusion centers, uh, which effectively create an an electronic prison, a digital police state from which there is no escape. Yet this crime prevention campaign is not so much about making America safer as it is about ensuring that the government has the wherewithal to muzzle anti-government discontent, penalize anyone expressing anti-government sentiment, and preemptively nip in the bud any attempts by the populace to challenge the government's authority or question its propaganda. As J.D. Tuchile writes for Reason, At a time when government officials rage against misinformation and disinformation that is is often just disagreement with whatever opinions are currently popular among the political class, fusion centers frequently scrutinize peaceful dissenting speech. These fusion centers are unacknowledged powerhouses behind the government's campaign to censor and retaliate against those who vocalize their disagreement and discontent with government policies. It's a setup ripe for abuse. For instance, an investigative report by the Brennan Center found that over the last two decades, leaked materials have shown fusion centers tracking protesters and casting peaceful activities as potential threats. Their targets have included racial, justice, and environmental advocates, right-wing activists, and third-party political candidates. One fusion sent in Maine was found to have been illegally collecting and sharing information about Maine residents who weren't suspected of criminal activity. They included gun purchases, people protesting the construction of a new power transmission line, the employees of a peace-building summer camp for teenagers, and even people who travel to New York City frequently. This is how the burden of proof has been reversed. Although the Constitution requires the government to provide solid proof of criminal activity before it can deprive a citizen of life or liberty, the government has turned that fundamental assurance of due process on its head. Each and every one of us is now seen as a potential suspect, a terrorist, and a lawbreaker in the eyes of the government. It had to happen. It had to happen. You know, I said at the beginning of the war on terror, that uh, the first person that a tyrant oppresses is himself. Before you can entertain in your head the thought that uh, you can arbitrarily um, chop other people's heads off, you need to bolt yourself down into an idea of yourself that is a monster. You have to weld yourself to depravity. You have to weld yourself to chaos and uh, pride. And uh, you have to be able to accept that the same thing can happen to you. Just as Americans, if you accept that uh, this genocide is happening against the Khazans, you're going to have to accept it can happen to you. We are speaking about it, how... Um, The war, Israel's genocide, is a war. But it's not a war against Gazans. It's a war against every single citizen of the world. Because if they expect you to accept that as normal, then you have to accept that it can happen to you. So now... The United States sees nothing wrong with subjecting Muslims to all of these controls and checks and searches and abuses of their rights. Now, look what's happening. It's happening to them as well. Um, Consider some of the many ways in which we, the people, are now treated as criminals, found guilty of violating the police state's abundance of laws and preemptively stripped of basic due process rights. Take, for instance, red flag gun confiscation laws. Gun control legislation, especially in the form of red flag gun laws, allow the police to remove guns from people suspected of being threats. These laws, growing in popularity as the legislative means by which to seize guns from individuals viewed as a danger to themselves or others, will put a target on the back of every American, whether or not they own a weapon. Then you get disinformation eradication campaigns. In recent years, the government has used the phrase domestic terrorist interchangeably with anti-government and extremist and terrorist to describe anyone who might fall somewhere on a very broad spectrum of viewpoints that could be considered dangerous. The ramifications are so far-reaching as to render almost every American an extremist in word, deed, thought, or by association. Government watch lists are also being abused. The FBI, the CIA and NSA, National Security Agency and other government agencies have increasingly invested in corporate surveillance technologies that can mine constitutionally protected speech on social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to identify potential extremists and predict who might engage in future acts of anti-government behavior. Where many Americans go wrong is in naively assuming that you have to be doing something illegal or harmful in order to be flagged and targeted for some form of intervention or detention. You get thought crime programs. Yeah, just like the Chinese are doing, the re-education camps for for the Muslims. For years now, the government has used all of the weapons in its vast arsenal to target potential enemies of the state based on their ideologies, behaviors, affiliations and other characteristics that might be deemed suspicious or dangerous. It's not just what you say or do that is being monitored, but how you think that is being tracked and targeted. There's a whole spectrum of behaviors ranging from thought crimes and hate speech to whistleblowing that qualifies for persecution or prosecution by the deep state. It's a slippery slope from censoring so-called illegitimate ideas to silencing truth. You get security checkpoints. By treating an entire populace as suspect, the government has justified wide-ranging security checkpoints that sub-travelers to scans, searches, pat-downs, and other indignities. Um, Surveillance and uh, pre-crime programs. Yeah, pre-crime, like it's um, a movie now. Facial recognition software aims to create a society in which every individual who steps into public is tracked and recorded as they go about their daily business. Coupled with surveillance cameras that blanket the country, facial recognition technology allows the government and its corporate partners to warrantlessly identify and track someone's movements in real time, whether or not they have committed a crime. You get uh, mail surveillance abuse. Just about every branch of the government now has its own surveillance sector authorized to spy on American people. For instance, the U.S. Postal Service has been photographed in the exterior of every piece of paper mail for the last 20 years. It's also spying on American texts, emails, and social media posts. Then you get constitution free zones. Merely living within 100 miles inland of the border around the United States is now enough to make you a suspect. But he lives inland. He is not a surfer, man. Uh, paving the way for Border Patrol agents to search people's homes, intimately probe their bodies, and rifle through their belongings, all without a warrant. Nearly 66% of Americans now live within that 100-mile-deep constitution-free zone. And then you get vehicle kill switches. Uh, this is Elon Musk and Tesla. Sold to the public as a safety measure aimed at keeping drunk drivers off the roads, vehicle kill switches could quickly become a convenient tool in the hands of government agents to put the government in the driver's seat while rendering null and void the Constitution's requirements of privacy and prohibitions against unreasonable searches and seizures. As such, it presumes every driver potentially guilty of breaking some law that would require the government to intervene and take over operation of the vehicle or to shut it off altogether. Then you get biometric databases have been built up. Guilt by association has taken on new connotations. The government's presumptions about so-called guilty innocence have extended down to our very cellular level, with a diabolical campaign to create a nation of suspects predicated on a massive national DNA database. Limitations are now being introduced on your right to move about freely. At every turn, you're tracked by surveillance cameras that monitor your movements. Then, of course, there's also the war on cash. Digital currencies uh, can be followed all over. They can see what you have been buying and selling for years and years and years. Get rid of cash and the anonymity that goes along with business disappears as well. And so they know exactly everything that you're doing. This, they say, is civilization. This this is the rule-based order that they are speaking about. The rule-based order. Inshallah, we'll speak about that in in some later shows. Um, But we have now run out of time for tonight. We'll Mm -hmm. be back tomorrow, but tomorrow's show will be focusing on the markets. So, uh, yes, any of you who've been missing my wonderful insights into business and Mm -hmm. finance and so on, well, it's back again, and if you want to hear that, that'll be on tomorrow night between 8 and 9. Allah for joining me this evening. It has been wonderful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.